Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and hello to co-host uh, Peter Bale. I'm Bernard Hickey for The Kaka. This is The Hoon. Peter, how's it going? Bernard, you're looking very good. You're looking very stylish. You look as though you've been for a swim and had a shower, which doesn't usually happen on the same day, <laughs> as far right. as I can tell. Yeah, no, exactly exactly right. I've got the whole sort of um, frosty salt out of my hair. Mm. Um, it's another gorgeous day in paradise uh, here. I wonder if it'll ever rain again. And to be honest, um, I'm with that. That's, that's Yeah, okay. well, it's Auckland, so we know that it will. Although there is, as mm. we know, that sort of weird macro climate in Waiheke, which it's often much, much sunnier and warmer in on Waiheke than it is in Auckland. Because we Yay. get the, you know, the, we get the orthographic rain, as I'll call it, off the city and the skyscrapers and it was such as they are, and the and the centre of town. Not to mention the Waitakere's. That's good, and I'm loving this macro climate pumped into property values. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about that with with uh, with Craig Rennie later on, right? About what's going on in the property market. And as I said, Alex Spence, who's at the Herald posted a thing on Twitter today or an X, uh, which was an extract of your column today talking about, you know, dear young people, just move to Australia. You know, just leave it to us boomers to run run and ruin your country. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to come across all nihilistic, but I certainly want to tell people, hey, this isn't going to solve itself. And um, if you think that we just need to wait for the young people to take over and it'll be fine, it's not. And mm. um, I'll go into that in more depth. Yeah, we have quite a cracking show this week. We've got David Farrier on shortly from Webworm to talk to us about his plans for investigative journalism. Then we'll have uh, Catherine Dyer, our climate correspondent, talking about the big news in forestry this week. It really is. Robert Patman about all the drama around the world of geopolitics, and there's plenty there. We'll talk with Craig Rennie about fiscal and monetary policy, um, how a government's budget actually isn't like a household's budget and that um, we might have a rate cut next week. And also um, we'll find out some more about some child poverty stats that came out today. It's been a, an, an amazing uh, week, uh, really, uh, Peter, with um, plenty of uh, drama, the departure of Grant Robertson, although that wasn't too mm. much as a surprise, and the shocking no. passing of Efeso Collins. Yeah, yeah, and that, that sort of brings us to the media, really, a bit, uh, and that when we should probably bring in David now, because one of the reasons I, you know, I don't want to turn this into a media show, but I've been reading a lot about media, writing about it to some extent. I'm I'm struck by the growth of the right wing press. I heard a very good podcast this week with our friend Duncan Grieve talking to Philip Crump, the man behind Thomas Cranmer and the uh, new ZB Plus thing, and this whole rise of the kind of right wing media in New Zealand is quite interesting. And I I interviewed a couple of politicians the other day for a, uh, a media thing that I'm not going to talk about so much, but they were talking about a lack of diversity in New Zealand media. And one of the reasons I wanted to get David Farrier, who many people in our audience will know, is David did something really cool this week, I thought, which is to announce a fund from David to support 
investigative journalism in New Zealand on important topics. So, David, welcome to The Hoon. Bernard is just thrilled to have you. He's he's the inventor of the kaka, and I'm allegedly his co-host. But it's really great to have you here. People will know you from your movies and from uh, television. Uh, I need to talk to you about Murray at some point. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, but you, you know, you've made a big commitment also to journalism, whether that's in your documentaries and on your Substack, and you've made some quite big kind of revelatory discoveries. But this idea, could you tell us what your new Webworm Fund is about? Yes, it's called, in keeping of the themes of worms, it's called um, Big Worm Farm, and essentially it was, you know, born under the idea of, you know. Um, I have paying subscribers and that allows me the time to write. And in the past, you know, I've paid other writers and guest columnists to write little pieces for me now and then. But it's gone to the point where I've been sort of putting some money aside and saving it with the idea that this might happen at some point. And it's gotten to the point where I thought, hey, I know there are people out there, journalists, uh, not just in New Zealand, but internationally, who will be sitting on some interesting stories that don't necessarily fit in a typical uh, media outlet. They might write for other publications. I don't mind where they write for typically. But I think Webworm has a specific voice and it's about going down weird wormholes. And I thought, why not set up this fund? People can apply for it if they're sitting on a story and they think that, you know, up to $6,000 would help them tell that story. Then I'm saying, this is here, apply for it. Hmm. And I have a couple of colleagues who are going to help me go through the applications and um, we'll expect pain. some from from Mr. Bernard Hickey and Mr. Peter Bale at any good, at, at, good. At, at any moment. But no, you know, happily. What, what, what Boy, hole have you... I got? Some stories for you on government bond deals. <laughs> We're going to just yeah. How what what gap you th- do you think you're trying to fill with this, David? And I, I also invite our audience um, who are watching us on on um, YouTube that if they want to send me any questions um, through the chat, I'll I'll refer them to David as well. Yeah, and very happy to take any questions. I think, I look, that's a really good question. I, I think there are certain investigators, you know, I'm looking to tell stories that haven't been told before. And I think what I found when I was reporting on Arise is that there are certain stories that I think lend themselves to being told in a format of either a blog post, something longer, or, you know, a newsletter where you can have different parts and different installations and you don't need to have this story told that it feels really static and has to be told all in one bit you know i'm looking for deep dives that can be told across you know multiple newsletters and multiple installations and someone can start their investigation on webworm and send something out and still be working on the story later in the year it's not like all has to be done at one point and i think there's a type of journalism that's a bit more lively and alive that doesn't have a set home certainly in new zealand but also, I don't know, I, I see Webroom, you know, my subscribers now come from, you know, the sort of, there'll be 30% in New Zealand, 30% in America, 30% rest of the world. So it's a super wide group of people. And I'm looking for stories that will appeal to all those people, not just, you know, not just specific stories locally or geographically. Yeah. So Bernard is a big sub stacker, as you know, so he's very eager. Yes. No, no. I'm, I'm a huge fan of uh, David. I'm a subscriber and I'm really thrilled to recommend uh, David's Substack. And it is, um, for me, one of those uh, Substacks places where stories build and build. And, and I, I'm, I'm really interested, David, in what you were saying about the format of blogs and Substacks as a way to layer and build and make like a snowball going down a hill to build a story. A lot of people think of investigative journalism as, you know, 
one story that comes out after nine months of investigation and bang, that's it, and nothing happens. But actually, when you look at the really big stories, the shocks, the the stories that, you know, bring down presidents and um, uh, force CEOs out and, and drive out ministers, often in the past, it has been newspapers working in tandem, in competition with each other, day after day, layering on top of each other aspects to a story, checking things, going down blind alleys, coming back out, going down again, having lots of people provide tips to various places. And it becomes a bit of a team effort. And you forget that investigative journalism is often very much a a team effort that is built day upon day. And and I'm, I'm curious to see how Webworm and the projects that you do take that, that layering, that, that sort of sequential rolling mall, so to speak, for, with a New Zealand flavour on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're completely right. And I think something that I find really inspiring about Webworm is, as you'll know from Kaka, it's like you, you build up, a, there's people that support you and are part of the community and they do feed into things. And we know when I was reporting on Arise Church, you know, that story wouldn't have been what it was unless it was live. And I had constant feedback from readers and people discovering the story and then getting in touch with me via Webworm with new tips and new information. And that would never have happened. And I think all my projects have been a little bit like this. You know, my documentary Tickled started as a series of three blogs. And from those blogs being put out into the universe, I got so much more information that eventually turned into a film. Sort of the same with Mr. Organ. Uh, That started off as a series of articles. So all this stuff, I, I like these stories that are alive and moving and yeah, you, you start hearing from people, whether it's the community that read Webworm or new people that find it. And I really love that idea. And I, th- I think Big Worm Farm, I want the writers that are engaging with it to sort of think of it in a similar way and to get excited by it. And, you know, be able to embed video and audio and images and all that stuff that we get to do when we have a newsletter. And I find that really exciting. Yeah. And David, we, we, one of the big criticisms in New Zealand media at the moment, and I'm wondering how you feel about this. And I've got a couple of questions about how this project might work for you, is the lack of distinction or increasing blurring between comment and fact, between between reporting and opinion. How, how do you feel about that? What do you I mean? You're you're a much younger journalist than I am, uh, slightly different experience and background. Uh, how do you see that sitting? That that balance? Yeah, it's very it's very blurred. And you know, I think it's uh, you know what I try and do. I, I I it's blurred, but I also try and make it very clear. I think when I write, it's very clear when I'm writing something that is like purely opinion and just me being injected in. And when you read something like the Arise series. It has some of my personality and at times sort of anger in there, but it's a very different style. And usually um, with those bigger stories, I will have someone working with me like Hayden Donnell or in the case of Big Worm Farm, Roswell Tans come on board and they kind of, someone else will sort of keep me in check. And I plan to do that with this is just having a, more of a collaborative process, um, not just getting lost in the wormhole myself. But yeah, it is, it's a big blurry mess, but I think that's not a bad thing necessarily. I think as long as when you're writing those pieces that are investigative and clearly more journalistic, you just, you can peel back the personality. And I think it's incredibly, I think it's good if readers know what to expect. They know with Webroom, they know what I am and they, they know what they're getting. Yeah, I guess you'll be wanting to make sure that, that they aren't hit jobs, which are frequently done in New Zealand. We've seen that with that chat, Cameron Slater, um, who, by the way, was finally um, 
not just convicted, but a judgment was made for him to pay nearly half a million dollars to... Took a while, but we got there. Yeah, to Mr. Blomfield. Yeah, I mean, just just that that because uh, uh, David, ha- I, I used to run the CPI, the Center for Public Integrity in Washington, which at that point incorporated the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, and I can I I know from from experience how big these projects can be, how hard they are, and what investigative journalism really is. I mean, not that I've done it myself as much, but I did run an organization that did it. I mean, how are you going to assess what is investigative and what is just a hit job or a or a piece of long-form reporting. I think that's what uh, Rosabelle and Hayden and I are going to figure out as we go. I don't have all the answers there. You know, literally, we, I think we're going to get these submissions from journalists around the planet that have stories. I'm going to look for things that suit the webworm format of taking readers in a really interesting, clear way. And I think between the three of us, and this is a very wifty-wifty answer, but I think between the three of us, we're going to start figuring out what that is. And I don't know, I think it's pretty clear what a hit job is. I think the people within Arise Church would probably argue that that was a hit job, but I see that very clearly and very differently. Well, some of our readers are also saying, Vicky Terrell is saying, thank you for the work on, for your work and particularly the work on Arise. Um, Rua MD is saying, love your mahi, David. Uh, and somebody is asking me, Catherine Voyles is asking me whether it's about a piece about John Campbell and North and South. I no longer read North and South because they, they canned my column, but um, <laughs> I, I do know that there was some controversy about John. I, my, my, I don't know him, but my, my sense is that he's, he means well. Um, we'll have a story that John, John did um, refer to it later on in the show. Which excellent. And someone on. says, yeah. I just cancelled my Webworm subscription, but we'll rejoin again when finances are in better shape. So you've got, oh, you've got, you've got friends, you've got friends here, David, in, in many respects. Bernard, do you want to ask the last question? David, um, you've been uh, uh, one of the inspirations for us substackers in terms of um, how uh, much momentum and success you've had. We've just had the traditional media in New Zealand parade before a select committee in, in Wellington last week, begging the government to uh, beat up on the big tech companies to pay them money Australian style. Um, some people say, ah, oh, don't worry, the government doesn't have a problem to solve. All we need to do is um, let the market rule and look at all these substackers doing so well. This will solve the problem of the, the dying mainstream media. What do you reckon of, of, about that line? Because you're, you're based in the United States where, in theory, this whole trend of, you know, the, the atrophication, the, the um, dilution of the mainstream media has gone further than it has even here. There are all these news deserts in Australia and, and, and well, in, in the United States. In America. There are in America. No, very clearly. I mean, no, I, I don't think, I don't think um, newsletters are the answer. I think it's this wonderful thing that is thriving right now and I think it's really wonderful that they're giving people uh, a voice and giving readers a decision to choose what they pay for and what they want to support. But no, I think, you know, I also, you know, I'm not in the New York Times, you know, none of us are. I think it's incredibly important we find ways to keep newsrooms running. I don't know how the hell we do that because people's attention is being drawn in a million different directions and the, the concept of so much suspicion around what journalism is. But I think we need to find a way to keep these places operating because you can't beat a big team of people that are all working together on those big stories. It's hugely important. I don't know how we solve it. Newsletters definitely aren't the answer. They're one tiny little piece of this structure 
and we need those newsrooms. No, we we know that the hoon is the answer, David. The hoon is the yeah, answer. Yeah, and the hoon, purely the hoon. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, I be de- we'll, be de- we'll be delighted to have you on again. It's really good to see you, and thanks so much for coming in before you go out uh, into the wilds of Venice Beach and Santa Monica. No big fan. As I always like to say with this news, that if anyone can't pay for it, I'll sign them up for free. I never want people to be under pressure, and that's the joy of this format. I love that you can do this, and that's the way it works. So thanks, you guys. Ruwa MD will come back in again. Thank you so much, David. And I'm looking forward to Mr. Organ 2 and Mr. Organ 3. Oh, God, don't make those kind of jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to see you all. Cheers. See you, David. Thanks so much. We were talking very uh, just a moment earlier ago about John Campbell and mm. uh, a North and South article I haven't read either. Uh, and there's been some controversy about John's more opinion-flavoured commentary. I mean, that's what a column is, basically, in, uh, on TVNZ. But uh, in the last week, he's come up with a cracking story, which uh, Catherine has uh, dug a bit into as well. Catherine, can you tell us about Unslaw? Uh, what's happening in Tolaga Bay and why it's important for the not just the climate but our forestry industry? Yeah, so there was a big story that came out this week that actually John Campbell covered on One News about one of Aotearoa New Zealand's largest forestry companies that lost its international certification under the Forestry Stewardship mm. Council. And that was related to slash damage way back in 2018. And we know in the six years since that damage in 2018, there's been a whole lot more damage that's happened as a result of Cyclone Gabriel and so on. But this was specifically a a response from the Forestry Stewardship Council who sent an independent auditor down to New Zealand to audit the auditors who audit the forestry companies and who um, give out the certifications. And they came to the conclusion that the um, social costs and the damage from that slash was such that that company, Earnslaw, shouldn't be covered under the Forestry Stewardship Council anymore. And this Forestry Stewardship Council, um, it's, it's not a you know brand name that we've all heard of, but in the global forestry market, this is a big stamp to make sure is on your logs because mm. if you don't have this stamp, everyone says, well, you're probably some sort of um, logger from Indonesia who's chopped up an orangutan on the way through. <laughs> That's right. Just about every every country in the world requires FSC certification before they will import logs from anywhere, including places like China. So, you know, there's not much of a market for your logs if you don't have FSC certification. And one of the things I find interesting about this is a non-government body globally has had more impact than the government or the regional council or our law in actually, you know, really grabbing people's attention and making stuff happen Mm. in a way that is sort of encouraging. Yeah. So it's actually quite rare for that kind of thing to happen um, under the FSC. And in fact, I kind of wondered, well, just how rare is it? And did a little bit of digging around into the background of the FSC and found, you know, there's quite a bit of controversy there in their, in their operations. Um, so they started out really well, really well with a lot of fanfare and a lot of support for some of the things that they were going to do, which initially the idea of it was that they would set standards for the environment, um, covering conservation and restoration of trees and Indigenous rights and economic and social well-being of workers, um, amongst a whole lot of other criteria. And so they they basically promised a better way of doing business in the industry and that they would have an impact on deforestation. So after 25 years uh, um, in the business, um, there was an article written in Yale 360 um, 
in 2018, um, and that Yale Environment 360 mm. is, a, is a paper that's put out at Yale University. And they basically said that it was a failed body, FSC, that they should call it a day after 25 years that it hasn't worked as planned. It has done nothing to contribute to um, halting deforestation. All its label really does is increase the price um, and the income for the people who are under it. And that, moreover, there were, had been a series of scandals in which FSC labelling had at times served merely to greenwash or launder trafficking in illegal timber. So basically, mm. there was also a, a study out last year, an academic study um, uh, that looked at an indigenous group in Chile and the effects of FSC certification on them and their livelihood rights and so on. And that was pretty dire as well. So essentially, you're talking about an organisation that has some holes that are big enough to drive illegal logging trucks through. And the head of the FSC has has said in response to critique and to questions that, you know, there, there will always be people who aren't happy with what they're able to do, but that it's the best that can be done. And, and, and in some places, you can understand that that might well be the case in developing countries who don't have good environmental regulatory systems and all that sort of thing. But for it to be the best that can be done in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is saying a lot about the standard of environmental regulation here, basically. Catherine, just one more story um, before you go. Um, some research into how people uh, would like action on climate change and how it's actually a lot more than is perceived. It sort of ties into what we've been talking about with the, the media um, earlier on. Um, what did this study find? Yeah, so this was a big study that was covered by Carbon Brief and it was published in Nature Climate Change. Um, it was a global study where they talked to 130,000 people in 125 countries and uh, were asking them about their attitudes to climate um, action. They found that something like 86% of people support pro-climate social norms, 89% would like the governments to do more to tackle warming and in fact nearly 70% of the people they talked to said that they would be willing to contribute 1% of their income to addressing climate change. But what they also found is that most of those people systematically underestimate um, how much support there is for exactly what they support. So most people think that they support climate action and they'd be willing to pay for it, but they think that they're a minority when in fact they are part of a large global majority who want those things. It's a classic case of where you think what you think is not the same as everyone else, but actually it is the same as everyone else. And once you realise that it's the same as everyone else, then you take action. We are um, social animals who like to follow the crowd. And if we think the crowd is in a certain place, we'll go there. And that's one of the problems, I think, is that increasingly lobbying is becoming tied up with opinion polling in which opinion polls are used to tell the public what the public thinks, mm. even if that's not what it actually thinks. I think orangutans are, um, are, are uh, social animals too, Bernard. Yes, 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 that's right. Yeah, the way the researchers put it, they said that people are conditional cooperators. So they're more likely to contribute to the public good if they believe that others are as well. And so therefore, it's really actually harmful to climate action if people think that everybody else isn't on the same page as them when they actually are. So that communication about it is really, really important. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Okay, thanks, everyone. Um, Robert, Welcome, welcome, Robert, our um, long-time 
uh, goat of the hoon, as they say. Um, oh, uh, greatest of all time. I thought we, yeah, good, you are, you are. That's right. Um, yeah. Lovely to lovely to see you. I'll throw it over to Peter because there's been so much happening in the um, the geopolitics this week. Well, Robert, I was just looking sideways at your uh, book list behind you and, and noticed Putin's kleptocracy is 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 there. It's always interesting to see what you've got shuffled around there. And I was thinking yeah, today yeah, that's written by Karen Darwisher, who was yeah, the first who was person so brave. Yeah, well, she was my PhD supervisor. So was she? Yes, and um, I was her first PhD student, University of Southampton in the eighties, and uh, and a remarkably brave person. Uh, many of us were deeply concerned. I remember ringing her just uh, when she got the book out and uh, sort of expressed concern in a long phone call about her wealth, her safety, and she said, "Well, there's nothing to worry about, Rob, because Mr. Putin." If it was written by a Russian, he would be hunting them down. But it, I'm just another American p- imperialist, so um, you know he won't worry about it. But I wasn't so sanguine myself, and of course uh, she then developed, uh, uh, and you know she may this may have happened anyway. But she then unfortunately developed cancer and died, which was her a tragedy. Yeah, it's a very brave book, and I, I remember it because it, it was one of the first uh, to identify exactly what was going on, the movements of capital, the movements of capital mm. through the city of London, and it named names. And it did. I think I, I guess why we're leading into this is that is that we know quite well about Alexei Navalny and his death this week, and he named names. I mean, I, I was looking today again at his video of the Putin palace, the billion-dollar Putin palace in near Sochi. And, you know, apart from its ostentation, it is this kind of weird... Um, mafia-like gift from the oligarchy and the kleptocracy that keeps Putin going. And that was perhaps what Navalny was best known for, was exposing those connections. Yes, and also uh, Mr. Putin's incredible desire for material goodies, and uh, which seems to have no limits, actually. And because the Sochi Palace is just one of a number of palaces he has. And so he, he sees himself as a bit of a czar, really. Yeah, yeah. The one in the Gulf of Finland looks absolutely. You know, it's a kind of thun, you know Thunderbird Island. Yeah. We've been we've been discussing this quite a lot, actually. Tracy Island kind of idea, but it's a it's a sort of it's got you know hidden hidden bunkers and and God knows what. And of course, there's still that super yacht held in Italy, which is one of one of several would appear. And, and you know, it's interesting. To, did you see? I mean, just going to the Navalny thing. One of the things that I uh, had a question of from a, a rather left-wing New Zealand blogger, and and it was I considered it to be rather nihilistic. It was Kyle Bernard, who I I think I, I think you know, and it was really about about Navalny's background, having gone to the Russia uh, right, you know, to the right wing, been been at ethno nationalist meetings, called immigrants, I think, cavities. I mean, he th- th- there's a dark side to his history that mm. we need to understand as well as this courage and bravery, do you think? Or or is that unreasonable to even think about at these times? I think he underwent a personal evolution politically. Mm-hmm. In the, you know, Navalny, when he was incarcerated in Russia after returning to Russia, mm. he described the Ukraine war as a stupid war based on lies. Uh, I'm not sure Navalny would have said that in 2014. I think... I think he did evolve, as people do with their political views. And I, th- I think it's a bit harsh to go back to 2008 when he made some of these quite nationalistic statements. In fact, he gave sort of tacit approval for the annexation of Crimea, but 
subsequently reversed himself. So I think it's fairer to judge him in his anti-corruption mode. Uh, and also, uh, I, yeah, he was a, a courageous man. And um, and that that's probably, you know, underestimating it. But um, I think he was fatalistic as well. I think he, I think he absolutely understood the risks of going back to Russia. He feared marginalization, though, in Germany, or death. You mean that he would he just be in exile? That he would just be a, well, somebody yes, in exile? Well, yes, there was that possibility. And I think he was quite passionate about really putting some pressure on Putin. Mm. And I think he felt that that prospect would diminish by staying in Germany. He also said something very telling. I, I think mentioned this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. He told a German journalist, if Putin wants to get me, he'll get me in Germany. So he yeah. he made he made the point, and of course we've just heard in last week uh, um, a former member of the Russian military is who defected has been killed in Spain. So Putin has quite considerable reach. But the thing that really struck me was he gave an interview shortly before it, he set up an organisation which was I think designed to withstand his death. And Yulia, uh, although obviously shocked and uh, his wife shocked by Navalny's death acted, I think, in a reasonably organized fashion. Uh, that is to say, she immediately, almost immediately said, I'm stepping into the breach. And to go to the to go to the Moscow Security Conference rather than be with her the children Munich at that, at that Munich Security sorry. <laughs> the Munich Security Conference about Moscow. Yeah. So where where does the sleep I, I was also you know, I, I wrote something about this today, you know, um Nemt, Nemtsov shot shot on the back by alleged Chechens uh, right in front of the Kremlin. Yes. Um you know, you know uh, That was a terrible tragedy. Nemtsov was politically more gifted than Navalny and had a very clear program. And that that uh, that was you know that was a classic Putin killing because uh, fifty four of the fifty six security video cameras around the Kremlin happened to be switched off when the assassination occurred. Uh, Nemtsov he was coming he was preparing a report on Ukraine. Yeah, and Anna Politkovskaya killed on his birthday on Putin's birthday. It would appear as a as a as a present. You know, yeah, but that again was a tragedy. A very courageous journalist mm. who did marvelous work on Chechen, uh, uh, Chechnya, I should say. But the the question that's intriguing me, on the face of it, Putin has just cleared another obstacle from his political path, mm. from perhaps from his point of view. But I'm wondering if, in fact, given the context of the Ukraine conflict, with the emotions it's unleashing in Russia, whether in fact um, it may be a miscalculation on his part. We'll wait and see. Yeah, it's very. But Mark Galliotti, who I'm sure you know, who's a, a British a military historian, who appears on podcasts, in fact, his own even more than you appear on ours. Um, you know, reckons that this is the action of a of a banana republic, and that uh, while Putin may be clearing clearing the way for his election in the elections next next month, um, you know, it actually shows his weakness rather than his strengths. I'm not convinced of that myself, but oh yeah. Well, that, that's exactly the point that Navalny made in a much-quoted interview he gave. He said, should I die? It means that Putin's weak. And um, that's the reason why we must fight on. He said, if I'm killed, that's the signal. A, he's weak, and B, we must have the organisation in place to continue the fight. And that's what seems to be happening. And what did you make of the promotion of the deputy head of the Russian uh, prison service to major general in the same week that um, that Navalny? Did you think that was a 
coincidence? <laughs> Reward, I would say. Mm. Uh, look, uh, I, look, I think the West has constantly underestimated Putin's ruthlessness. And he's rewarding people. Someone was given the order, I think, to deal with Navalny. Mm. And uh, it occurred under that guy's watch. And I think the, the, the person who's being decorated. And I think that is recognition. Thank you for obeying orders. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Well, it, it doesn't, in a sense, and and the and uh, Elliot Higgins, who runs Bellingcat, uh, the investigative OSINT investigative journalism outfit, pointed out that it doesn't really matter, in a sense, whether he was poisoned this time, or whether he died of of what one might think of natural causes. And uh, you know, the the you know, he's in a he's in a gulag for Christ's sake, and under in minus twenty six degree. Yeah, the, you know? there was a slightly humorous uh, explanation from the Kremlin that he was out for a walk, out for a walk. When he appears on video cameras, he is handcuffed. You can just see him strolling off for a walk around the prison yard mm. in minus 27 degrees in open-air solitary confinement much of the day. Um, this is a very cruel regime. And the video of him from the very previous day made him look particularly healthy. Um, I, I wonder, Robert, uh, though, um, given what's happened with Navalny, the Russians are having a good time in the war in Ukraine, though, with a lack of ammunition for uh, Ukraine's artillery. They've had to um, evacuate this, this big city. How do you think that changes the equation? I think you're referring to... Avdivka, yeah. Avdivka. Um, that was, I think, a settlement of about 30,000 people before the war. It has very little strategic value. The Russians... According to, I think, pretty sensible strategic analysts, probably expended 30,000 lives getting it and has made the Russian army quite upset because that's terrible losses and they don't stop. Um, I'm not sure Russia's having a, a good time in the war. It certainly has a symbolic gain. It's paying a terrible price in doing so. And note that in the last seven days, the Ukrainians have shot down aircraft worth a combined value of 350 million. That's seven different aircraft. Also, they, of course, they sunk a ship that we referred to recently and relentless targeting of Russian infrastructure. So, yes, uh, there's no doubt about it. The decline of American support because of its domestic situation is hurting Ukraine, but there are signs others are stepping into the breach. We discussed last week that Denmark has made its entire military stockpile available to uh, Ukraine. And I think there's a bit growing recognition, actually, amongst the Europeans that they can't count on the Americans going forward because there's a, high, there's a possibility that Mr. Trump may win the election. Or even if Nikki, you know, if Nikki Haley wins the election, that if she gets the nomination, that might make things a little bit more optimistic. But I think with the Germans about to make a decision on the Taurus, apparently, with long-range missile, and also Mr. Biden saying he still has scope, despite the lack of congressional funding, to make decisions about uh, things like, uh, I always forget the acronym, is it eight? Attackums. Attackums. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a long-range version, 300 kilometers. There's hints coming out of Washington, they're finally going to move on that. So it's all a bit iffy, but I think mm. actually... We always forget, Russia likes to project itself as a superpower. It's not a superpower. It hasn't got an economy like China's or the US. It's got a relatively small economy, about 10th in the world, and it's fighting a very expensive war. 
Where it's going the upper hand recently is because it's on a war economy footing. About 30% of its GDP is going on the war, but that's causing real social tensions in Russia. And so I think that I still stick by my uh, view that although it's not going swimmingly for the Ukrainians, it's not turned out to be a particularly successful venture for no. Mr. Putin. And Robert, last week we talked a little bit about those remarkable comments that Trump made about, you know, willing the Russians to to go and attack people if they didn't pay that, didn't uh, <laughs> contribute enough to NATO. And of course, you, you will have read the extraordinary remarks that, that Trump made about Navalny's death, turning it entirely into it's all about him. It's always about him. To to you know that 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 it showed that what a banana republic the U.S. was. You know, he he was sort of putting himself in Navalny's shoes as a, as a truth teller. Yeah, he's narcissistic to, uh, uh, you know, to a T, I suppose. But as Mary Trump, his niece, has confirmed in a book, he's probably a very seriously ill person and he's incapable of seeing the world other than through his own personal lens. So, Robert, two years on, today is the second anniversary yep. of the Russian invasion of New Ukraine. I always think that we... You know, it was expected. The Americans did that brilliant intelligence leaking weeks yes. in the weeks run up to it. You know, that that was a great tactic. The um, Ukrainians managed, for various reasons, to to thwart the initial phase, which which now Putin, of course, describes as a, to Tucker Carlson as a, a tactical withdrawal. Um, where do you think we stand? Is it is is it stalemate? Yeah, I suppose you could describe it as a form of stalemate. But I think the uh, Ukrainians have changed tactics. I think they tried to have a counteroffensive to, to, I mean, it was a hellishly difficult task to push back a front of a thousand kilometers wide, which was in, involving entrenched defensive Russian positions. I think they've now switched. We've seen a change in command that we spoke about last week. And I think they're going for asymmetrical warfare where they're going to target particular infrastructure in Russia mm. And they're hitting Russia in the rear now. And I think one of the devastating consequences that Biden may have hinted about now for Navalny's death uh, may be to do with Ukraine. So mm. I, I, I think Interesting. one of the international implications of Navalny's death may be to stiffen European resolve. It's come home just what sort of regime Putin is. And it's put those who've been defending him in an even more difficult position. Oh, but Robert, all leaders all leaders kill people. All leaders oh, kill just, people. You know. Yeah, that's that uh, well-honed <laughs> journalist, um, Tucker Carlson, yeah. who says every leader has to kill. Well, maybe in a society where 340 million arms are in private hands, he may think <laughs> that. But as far as I know, no New Zealand leader's been... Uh, assassinating people that irritate them. Well, well I think we let's, let's not get into Jacinda in this one yet. I've been talking <laughs> to Chantal Baker. Bernard. Yes, just just finally, uh, Robert, one of the um, slightly weird and um, slightly unnerving stories to develop this week is talk out of the United States that they think Russia is putting nuclear weapons into space. What did you make of that? Yes, and uh, it, the, the story surfaced, first of all, from a committee in Congress, um, and and it has been confirmed by the administration, but it was interesting because the story was first leaked by a Congress uh, from someone who's got responsibility for overseeing uh, intelligence. It's very difficult to what to make of it. I think Mr. Putin is at war with the West, and he'll be trying to develop weapons as the Chinese, as far as I can see, to um, hit satellite communications. We've also learned 
about some on the Chinese side, Vault Typhoon. Recently, this uh, cyber capacity or attack system, which is apparently like a sleeper, it sits mm-hmm. in the system for a long time. Presumably, it will be used if China decides to attack Taiwan, invade Taiwan, and then they apparently, according to the theorists, then they would trigger this system to complicate communications between Taiwan and Japan and its Asian allies and the United States. So coming back to Bernard's question, though, um, knocking out satellites using a nuclear capability, I think, is the what they're envisaging, isn't it? The good thing is your brief is now going from international affairs to space and international affairs. So you're going to be able to ask Grant Robertson for even more money to you know, buy more <laughs> books and fund your uh, gin distillery business that sits behind you. Of the, you know. <laughs> Robert, thank you very much for that um, truly universal view of the world. That's lovely. And space. And space um, mm. and, and beyond. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you. We'd like to welcome to the show again uh, CTU economist Craig Rennie. Craig, lovely to have you on the show, and particularly because, you know, as a fellow monetary and fiscal policy geek, I uh, always like to talk about monetary and fiscal policy. And this week we had the finance minister, Nicola Willis, before a select committee comparing the government's budget to a household budget, saying when times are tough, the best thing to do is to oh, cut back. God, thank you, Mrs. Thatcher. Yeah. yeah. So so what did you think, Craig? It's it's funny. It's a, one of those sort of um, myths that won't disappear. It's a bit like the Yeti. It's sort of, you know, regardless of what you do, it's still here. The idea that a government's budget is somehow like a household's budget. Um, actually, the opposite is true. Government should often be investing when households' budgets are tightening. It's often better for an economy where if the government acts in what we call in the trade a counter-cyclical manner. And so the government should be spending when the economy generally is struggling a little bit. Last time I checked, we were in recession. And right now, arguably, we should actually be investing in New Zealand. We have a $210 billion infrastructure gap, and that's before population is growing at the fastest rate that we've had at some point in time. We have climate change to tackle. I note in in her address to the FEC, um, the finance minister talked about the best insurance policy for climate change is low debt. Mm. The best insurance policy for climate change is to act today, is Mm. to do things today. It's not to actually wait until you can borrow some money because you've had a disaster. And it's fascinating, too, to see um, her sticking to this quite orthodox Treasury line that the most debt we should possibly handle is 30% net GDP. I spoke to the head of S&P Global's ratings division in this part of the world, Anthony Walker, yesterday, and he said, no, New Zealand is not fragile. It could actually handle another 30% of GDP Mm. of debt, $120 billion, particularly if it was going to be used to build infrastructure to grow the economy, cope with all these extra people and prepare for climate change. Because one of the the great ironies of this line, and you hear it uh, many times, and I've heard it from both sides of politics, we, we can't borrow now because we need to be able to borrow when we have the rainy day. Mm. And guys, the rainy day happened. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's happening as we, we speak. Um, what, what do you think of that? Uh, this orthodoxy which says uh, we, sh- we shouldn't be using the Crown's balance sheet to prepare for tomorrow just in case something bad happens like an earthquake or a, or a COVID um, breakout or another cyclone Gabrielle? We should always seek to spend public money as well as we can. 
And we should always seek to spend money to get the best value for money possible out of that expenditure. But that doesn't mean no investment. That doesn't mean actually cutting investment. As often as it's not when you undertake value for money exercises, the first thing you learn is that you're not spending enough money on various things. Um, and we have examples, I'm in Wellington, we have examples of this right around the corner here. Every street has a leak on it because we haven't been investing in water for 30 years. Um, we had mold in hospital walls because we weren't investing in the health service for enough. We should be investing at the right time. And unfortunately for us, the right time increasingly was 15, 20 years ago. So we have a big catch-up job. And, and not penny-pinching on infrastructure all the way through. I mean, I think this is, the, this is this, it's such a, I mean, when, when Bernard and I were growing up, there, there was an organisation, Auckland Citizens and Ratepayers. And you see it now with the New Zealand Tax Payers Alliance, is this, this extraordinary sort of attempt to compress the use of uh, funds to just keep things ticking over. Yep. And, and I just want to pick up on one point, Bernard, that you said. I, I couldn't agree more, Peter. I always pick up one thing you said. You said this isn't what you call the treasury orthodox line, about mm. 30% GDP. I actually think increasingly it's not even the treasury's orthodox line. The treasury's orthodox line is, yes, you should have low debt, but you should be making the essential investments necessary in order to keep the machine going. Um, if we went back 10 years, absolutely it would have been the treasury's line, but I think less so now. And Last time I checked on the books, which was, you know, the December accounts for the Treasury, net Corcoran debt was 21.7% of GDP. The UK, it would be 100%. The US, it would be 120%. Yeah. So this fragile comment, not, not to get you too much into politics, but this, this line of fragility and the failure mm. of, and, and, and it, well, I don't want to be too personal about it, but the, the supposed failure that was being discussed around Grant Robertson, we're not actually on the fundamentals in that bad a position, are we? No, absolutely not. I mean, certainly, um, you know, our economic recovery from COVID was one of the best economic recoveries anywhere in the world. There are arguments about whether or not there was too much stimulus, not enough stimulus. But the reality is unemployment in New Zealand fell to record lows. We saw wage growth, very high levels. We saw sustained government investment. The idea that we were somehow economically fragile when those indicators would be on the other side. If, if unemployment was very high, if wages were very low, if the government had no ability to borrow, if no one had any confidence in the government's finances, that would make us fragile. Instead, we have very low unemployment. We have uh, very low levels of government debt. And our debt is very valuable around the world. People will happily pay us for more of it. That would be a truly fragile economy. Yeah, Bernard, Bernard and I went out for our usual two bottles of champagne and some oysters and a, and a, a crayfish. But, and you said, Bernard... Um, we don't have a debt problem. And in fact, as we were having our lunch of a scone and a pizza and some pasta um, and a glass of tap water, the Treasury was auctioning through a syndication some 30-year bonds. And this is a big deal in the world of debt markets. The New Zealand government is borrowing billions of dollars for 30 years. And if you were fragile and the bond markets had lost confidence in you, A, you wouldn't be even starting the auction, but B, you'd get a bad price. But instead, what we saw in that auction on Wednesday, and we got the results yesterday, was for that initial $2 billion worth of bonds that were, were offered, 
$19 billion worth of bids came in. So the Treasury said, right, we're going to double the amount. We'll give you $4 billion instead. And the price came in at just one basis point over the secondary market price. Now, for the bond market geeks amongst us, that's a bloody good price to the point where the, the BNZ um, senior rate strategist and others came out today and said, fantastic result in the bond auction. Mm. And S&P Global's head of sovereign ratings in this part of the world said to me, if New Zealand's finances were fragile, there wouldn't be a AAA credit rating. Yeah, so and why is he talking it down? Why is Chris Luxon why, talking why it down? Why is Chris Luxon talking New Zealand down? That's what I want Craig, to know. Craig, what, what do you reckon? This is, a, this is an old a tale as time. Um, I, I like to talk about this as we have a new dog, but we're trying to teach it old tricks. Um, it's talking the economy down, um, because, and it's talking up the fear factor. Because if you have fear, then you, you're not worried about spending. You're not worried about investment. You're worried about saving. You're worried about, oh, we'll best have some cutbacks. We best agree that, you know, we would just withdraw ourselves. And, and yes, we'd like a little tax cut because that helps us along on the way. And, you know, and that's the story to sell, not the story that actually there isn't any fragility because if there isn't any fragility, why aren't you investing? Why can't I have the health service that I feel like I should be having? Why can't my children have the education service that I feel they should be having? Well, oh, because we're a very fragile state. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not do any expenses. Let's just manage expenditure really well and not do anything. At the same time as we're giving landlords $3 billion of a tax cut. At the same time as we're cutting $2 billion from climate change investment. And ironically, many of the problems we have in New Zealand are due to a lack of debt. So local government is bankrupt in many places. Mm. And it's because it can't borrow anymore because the local government finance settlement doesn't work. Kainga Ora can't borrow anymore to build more state housing, even though we've got 20 plus thousand households on the wait list. There's plenty of opportunities to borrow. There's plenty of opportunities to invest. But the fragility argument is a nice rhetorical device to stop us from doing that and to give us some fear to manage that. And this is where there's an opportunity for those other bond market geeks in the, in, in the world who are able to say publicly, bullshit. Because unlike in 1991, when Ruth Richardson came out and said, the government's finances are like the households, we're almost broke. We're about to get uh, downgraded by Standard & Poor's. We can't borrow money into international markets, which was true. She used that excuse to slash benefits. Now, to be fair to this government, it isn't slashing benefits, not in nominal terms right now. It is doing it in real terms by changing the indexation method. But it is time to call bullshit on this because unlike in 1991, when New Zealand did have high foreign debt, which was denominated in foreign currencies for short terms with variable interest rates, which were prone to blow out whenever there was a loss of confidence or a change in the currency, New Zealand now borrows in its own currency for long periods with fixed interest rates. So the risks that we get abandoned by the world's financial markets are much, much lower, not to mention the fact that our net debt at 20% of GDP is you know, less than a fifth of what it was uh, in 1991. So I, I think it's, it's worth calling bullshit on this fragile stuff. If you genuinely believed in this and you genuinely believed in a social investment approach. We've had child poverty numbers today where we've had a turning point in the child poverty numbers. And you've seen, you know, on the three indicators, two statistically significant 
big increases in child poverty. Another increase on the numbers, although there's a statistical significance question, but on all nine of the indicators, the central estimate of the number of children living in poverty has increased. Hmm. Last year, the Nobel Prize for Economics was not last year, but the year before was won by a man who showed that the best investment that you could make was in um, the first thousand days of a child's life. Absolutely. We're condemning children to child poverty. We're condemning them to a poor start in life. You should be borrowing to invest to end, or at least to help deliver the end of that child poverty because it will pay dividends, not only for them, but for everybody else for the next 30 years. That's a true investment approach. Simply managing down your balance sheet because you're a bit worried about the level of debt, which by the way, isn't a worry. Um, if we applied that rule to global um, you know, firms like you know, AT&T, we'd have no bond issuances. We'd have no borrowing from any firm at all. We're being asked to obtain a standard that's not measured by anyone anywhere. So it's nonsense. Particularly at a time when the world's savers, so the, all the baby boomers, are at an age where they're putting money into bond funds. And all these bond fund managers are going to government saying, please borrow off us. I see you've got all these young people and mm. you've got a fast-growing population and you're actually reasonably saying, we want to give you the money to fix your housing and your water and all that stuff. And it's so frustrating that um, the government won't jump in there. Just finally, on the other um, side of the monetary and fiscal policy fascination, we've seen this week councils announce that they're having to do double-digit uh, rates increases, which, of course, flows through into inflation numbers and is one of the reasons why we have sticky domestic inflation. And there's some suggestion, uh, not the majority, but there are some who are saying... There could be a rate hike next week. What do you reckon? Yeah, ANZ has forecast two rate rises um, uh, over the next few months because it believes that the Reserve Bank will essentially have a least regrets approach and will um, increase the interest rate in order to just ensure that that sticky, as they put it, domestic inflation or non-tradable inflation um, will then fall. It's fair to say that that's a, that's a fairly contested view amongst analysts and plenty of other analysts will tell you that that's not the case and that there's no, there's no real need for that. I think certainly where I sit, Graham Wheeler, the, reserve, the former bank governor, always used to talk about an interest rate change taking 18 months to have an effect. And that's the transmission time. So 18 months from now, the two-year expectation for inflation is well below where we are now. So you, you would be affecting a change 18 months from now when inflation's already well on the way down. I don't personally see that need to do that. There's, there's, the interest rates are already um, hurting many, and they're certainly um, you know, impacting the housing market. They're certainly impacting investments in the real economy. Um, there's, there's no compelling case for change that I can see from the data that's been presented. ANZ may have a different view, but... That to me is, I can't see that um, from, from what they've put forward. It will be interesting to see at uh, two o'clock uh, next Wednesday. And I have an interview with the Reserve Bank Governor the following day. And uh, it will be good to see what he has to say. Um, thank you very much, Craig. Lovely to see and lovely Thanks, to hear you. It is fantastic. <laughs> it's really good. It's such an approach. Thank you so much. You're a, voice right. of, you're a voice of reason that we can actually hear now. Uh, Peter, um, you've got a skateboarding dog for us. Well, Bernard, I was going to say something to you as well, because I've been making the mistake lately of listening a little bit to Sean Plunkett. 
And uh, I also even listened to Hosking yesterday because of that oh. ludicrous remark by the label woman against Mark Mitchell. Yeah, and I just, I just thought that was such a lucid, intelligent conversation between you and Craig uh, with my odd interjection there. But it, it isn't about culture wars. So anyway, let me leave you with a cult. You, you know, you're totally brilliant, and um, you, you're doing something nobody else is doing, really. But a friend of mine today put a note out on on X, and he's a guy called Bill Gruskin, who used to be the managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. Very clever chap. And it was a little tiny annotation to a story about Boeing having fired today the head of the 737 oh, yeah. factory in Seattle, which is the most – it's an extraordinary place to visit because there's just lines of the buggers. And as my friend Bill said – don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, just imagine being that person who's responsible for crippling one of the world's great companies of the last 100 years. Well, we uh, can do a separate one on that because I, I actually have investigated that a lot. But um, anyway, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I thought it was an absolutely subtle and brilliant and rather gruesome uh, joke, as, as they all are. Anyway, thank you, Bernard, for this today. You're totally brilliant. And we had and a lovely you time going around the, la- the traps, and I shall be about to jump out and jump into the sea again. Yes, it's nearly as high tide, yeah. Yeah, lovely to see you, Peter. A, a great show. And we shall see you all next week on The Hoon. Ka kite anō. Ka kite anō. See you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>